0: So we left off at, at verse 37 here. Um, I didn't title this sermon. Um, standing firm might be a good one. Um, a lot going on here. This is Paul addressing the mob here in Jerusalem. So I'll, I'll go ahead and begin to read. And, and this is going to be a great uh, example for us on, on witnessing in the midst of, of a society who whose worldview is just pushing further and further and further away from the truth. Um, So as I read, just gaze your eyes on on the words of Scripture, the Word of God, and just take reverence that it is completely inerrant and sufficient um, for building up reproof, correction. Verse 37, as Paul is about to be brought into the barracks, He said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And he had given him permission. Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia and brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priests and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem and and to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing by me and said to me, "Brother Saul, receive your sight." And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Let's pray. Father, this morning pray for sanctification, sanctification that can only come through the conviction of your spirit, through your word. Father, pray for changed hearts. If there's anybody here that has not been regenerated, Father, we pray that your sovereign wind lays heavily upon their heart this morning. Father, we pray for your imminent return that we eagerly await. We pray as we wait Your spirit guides us to to further your kingdom, to proclaim the glory of your son. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, so we see here that Paul, he was rescued by the commander, Lysias, Claudius Lysias. It's indicated here in the next few chapters of who that man was. Uh, he was rescued, and to keep Paul safe, he brings him to the barracks. So he's on the steps of that Antonia Fortress that, that we looked at. We kind of saw that on the map last week. It's um, so to the side there of the temple is where they brought Paul to. And then in verse 7 here it says, that Paul is about to be brought into the barracks, Antonia Fortress. He said to the tribune, to Claudius, he says, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? So so we see here, Paul, he's he's addressing the commander in his language, in in Greek, and it's likely that Lysias, he probably knew a little bit of Hebrew, it's plausible they didn't know any, Um, but so he's addressing him in his his language here. Uh, Verse 37 then says, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So... We see here who Claudius is, is mistaking Paul for. So three years prior to this, there was this big revolt in Jerusalem led by this Jew from, from Egypt. He stirred up this revolt against the Romans and also against the Jews who were consenting to the Romans. Um, Josephus, he records about this man. Um, Josephus, just kind of put this note out there, is he's not always 100% accurate. All right, but we have this historical record that, that Josephus records. And he talks about this Jew who, who claimed to be a prophet. and He led a band of, of, of 30,000 men, 30,000 Jews to, to the Mount of Olives. And at the Mount of Olives, he says, he says, I'm a prophet. I'm going to, to speak the word of God in the walls of Jerusalem are going to fall and we are going to go in to the Antonia Fortress. We're going to invade it. We're going to kill all the Romans and take control of Jerusalem. That was the prophecy that this this, uh, Egyptian Jew, false prophecy, this Egyptian Jew uttered to this stirred up group. Um, Governor Felix. Felix is the governor. We're going to meet him here uh, soon. So the governor of Rome... Caught wind of this, and he sent out soldiers that just slaughtered these these Jews that were following this Egyptian false prophet. Um, and then we see here in verse 30, 38, the this Egyptian and about 4,000 men escaped. So that was this occurrence here that that the governor Felix sent out these soldiers, and 4,000 of them escaped. Out of the 30,000 that were stirred up. And so, Lysias here thinks that Paul is that man. He's assuming he's that man. And notice here it says, again, led the 4,000 men of the assassins. That's so that Greek word is sakari. So just kind of a little Greek lesson here. It comes from the, the, the root word dagger. So these were men of the dagger is what they were, what they were called. And so these men... These assassins would hide these daggers in their cloaks, and during these big festivals and, and crowds, they would slip in, they would pick their target, slip in amongst the crowd, pull their dagger, thrust it into their body, and sneak off through the crowd. That was the, the Sicarii, and that's who, can, who Lysias believed this man to be, is the leader of that, that terroristic, um, violent group. So here in in verse 39, Paul corrects him. He says, he replies, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. So again, Paul corrects him. Um, Then he goes on in 40 to say, when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. So, so he's speaking to him in Aramaic, addressing the crowd in Aramaic, which was the, the, the dialect of, of Hebrew. It's the sister language of, of ancient Hebrew. So he's speaking to him in, in Aramaic, It's the language spoken of by the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea at that time. And what he's trying to do, he's, he's establishing this common ground with the mob, with the people. It's like, I'm one of you. I speak Hebrew, and one of you, and because there's, remember, there was several people, most of which the, the, the crowd were, were saying one thing, saying another. They didn't even know what was going on. They were just moving with the crowd, and so he addresses them in, in Hebrew, and it hushes the crowd. He begins his, starts to begin his defense here, and and he'll, he'll begin to, to explain his testimony, and how he was once hostile, just like they are, and God completely transformed him. So he reveals what, what Christ has done, including uh, this calling on his life to go to the Gentiles. I didn't read that far down, but you can, you can see down in verse 21 where, where he says, speaking of his, his calling to go and far away to the Gentiles. And, and that, that is in his speech when the, the Jews just, they just pop a cork at that point. And we won't go into that uh, today, but um, probably next week we'll, we'll hit more on that, the, the final part of this speech. So verse 1, it says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Notice that. Notice how he begins. He's, he's being respectful, which is gnarly because he's just beaten by these people. He's being respectful. Respectful in addressing them with humbleness. He's he's not saying, you you brood of hellbound vipers. He's not saying that. He's saying, brethren, fathers, terms of endearment, terms of respect. I think that verse right there is is a lesson in and of itself that, that we don't we don't always have to take the the John the Baptist approach but sometimes it's needed but we don't always have to and so he's addressing them in a in a loving manner and and just remember we talked about it last week Paul's heart his heart for his kinsmen his heart for his countrymen where he said that for if i could wish that i myself were accursed cut off from christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh that's how that's how heavy his heart was for his people. Then he goes on. He says, I'm going to do a quick overview of this, and then we'll, we're going to hit on this application. So now I'm kind of flying through these, these verses here. Um, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I, that I now make before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born, of Tars- born in Tarsus and Sicilia and brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. So again, he's setting the stage. He's gaining their ear and letting them know that I am one of you. I'm a Jew. I'm one of you. He says here, I was raised at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel is, is, is historically one of the premier teachers of Jerusalem. Gamaliel, Gamaliel's grandfather was Halil. He's the one who, who started the, the school of Halil, which is likely where Paul studied at. It was the prestigious school in Jerusalem. He studied at the feet of, of, of Gamaliel. Um, he's establishing this common ground. Again, he's saying, I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew just like you in heritage as well as in education. So he's saying here that I'm zealous for God. I am brought up in the strict manner of the law. He's saying that I'm I'm more Jew than you are. He's saying that that I was raised at the the premier school. And he says, I persecuted this way. So that was the, the original name, the early name for Christians, the way, the way of the Nazarene. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priests and the whole council of elders can bear me witness from them. I received letters to the brothers, and I joined and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who also were there and being and bringing them in bonds to Jerusalem and punishing, him, punishing them. So he's now shifting their minds to his old character. So he's setting this stage, shifting their minds to, to his old character, his, 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 his zeal f- for persecution of the church. Uh, Paul here is saying that, that I too, I too had blood on my hands, just like the exact thing you guys are trying to do to me. It's like, that was me. So he's, he's bringing their minds to, to um, where he once was before Christ, before Christ had saved him. And, and Saul, he, he's likely <clears throat> at that time, Prior to his conversion, he was likely on the payroll of the Sanhedrin as a, essentially like a bounty hunter. He was a bounty hunter being paid to, to go and, and find the Christians and just to snuff them out. He was like a government-paid terrorist, which is not uncommon. We kind of see that a little bit today. So his zeal in, in persecuting Christians was, was relentless. He was willing to go anywhere. I can only just imagine the, the meeting there uh, amongst the council of, 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 of elders, and they're like, man, there's this group of Christians that, that are spreading the name of Christ in, in Damascus. Who's willing to go on this six-day journey? And Paul's just eager, fire-breathing Pharisee, ready to go. So he takes this long six-day journey to Damascus just to persecute these Christians. It's interesting, too, to, to think that, that Damascus was, as far as Paul saw at that time, as far as he went in, on his own power, was going by his own power, um, his own zeal to persecute these Christians, and then after his conversion, and how far does he go on, on the power of God? I mean, these three missionary journeys and, and countless miles. You see the separation there. Um, and remember too, Paul, he, he thought that he was serving God. He was sincere in what he was doing. But yet he was sincerely wrong. It's a very good example that we must always examine ourselves. Not just on days of communion, but each and every day. Like what is, what is truly my motive? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I not doing what I should be doing? So examining ourselves and making sure that our motive is, is, is true and pure. So Paul's point here is that, that he is proclaiming that he was anything but anti-Jewish. He's the Jew of Jews, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He's connecting with them. This here and also in so many other places um, indicates that Paul, he he never forgot the depths of his own depravity. Never forgot. He recounts it here. He'll do it again in chapter 26. He would never forget the, the evil hatred and the persecution that he had towards the church of Christ. In fact, when... When he wrote to the, to the Corinthians in chapter 15, verse 9 of the first letter, he says, brothers, I am the least of the apostles, not even worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He understands he's forgiven, but, but he, never, he never forgot. He Never forgot. So Ana, there may be some of us here who, probably most of us have done some pretty gnarly things in our life. Following the course of the world, we'll have to be thankful by, by the grace of God in, in the bloodshed of Christ that, that you are forgiven of those sins. But sometimes through God's providence, we don't forget. We don't forget the things in which we're now ashamed of. As Paul says reminding us that, that we were following in the course of the world dead in our trespasses at enmity with Christ these reminders that they may even wake us up in the middle of the night this isn't to, to serve as, as a torment but as a reminder of the miracle of salvation a miracle of salvation that, that Christ performs in the lives of sinners. It's not to plague us. It serves as an ego or a pride check, reminding us of who we once were. Keep us with a thankful heart that, that God has forgiven us of those sins. Paul here, he, he never forgot. Never forgot of the depravity the, the which God saved him up out of. He was dead and now he's alive. Alive in Christ. That's why he was such a, such a servant of God. Because he never forgot. I believe this is, this is something here that is so forgotten in modern Christianity. So forgotten. So many... Americans profess Christianity, but yet sacrifice nothing. Nothing. They profess to know Christ. They profess to know the living God. But they're dead. Why? I'll tell you why. At some point, at some point in their lives, they went all the way to the cross all the way to the cross probably by some altar call sinner's prayer some emotional worship service where the lighting was just perfect went all the way to the cross went all the way but they never got on the cross themselves never got on themselves not willing to be sacrificial in their life. Paul says to the Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ who lives in me. I hear it all the time, sharing the gospel and, and speaking to people who profess Christ but have zero assurance no assurance in their salvation. They're like, I don't know. I don't know what will happen to me. But they profess Christ. They profess to know the living God. Oh. It's not a matter of debate. If you know the living God, your assurance is 100%. It's 100%. Think of this. If you're going on like a hike up a mountain and you're wearing a 100-pound rucksack and somebody in the midst of that hike takes that backpack off and you get to the top and they're like, where's your backpack? He's like, oh, I didn't even notice it was gone. No. You will notice that weight lifted off. You will know. 100% assurance. It's not something that you can fake or counterfeit. At least not for too long. Paul goes on in, in, in Galatians, the last chapter in verse 14, it says, But far by or say but far be it to me from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which, he, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Laying aside all the things of the world. I understand, there's a sanctification process in that. But in the, in the same sense, our eyes no longer fixed to the world, but fixed to Christ. Solely on things from above, not things from below. Eyes fixed to Christ. That's why we see all too often, going back to that, that professing Christian, the testimonies between a professing Christian and someone who is truly saved by the blood of Christ, is completely different. Completely different false comfort, can only look back to the time in which they said a prayer or did an altar call. And I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm not saying that God can't save people through those things. But going to a moment, and that's it, stops right there. Where a true believer's testimony begins there, but thrusts forth from there. Yes, they can look back and they can ponder upon the day in which Christ has saved them, or or a roundabout time in which Christ has saved them. But then their testimony from there that God has poured into their life this sanctification, and a true believer does not just look back, but yet they look forward. They look forward into eternity. Your eyes are set on the prize, which is Christ. I'm not set on some time in the past. It's forward. Always forward. So I'll say that if your testimony, it's only a moment of time in which you can peer, or gaze upon in the past, I suggest. Getting on your face and praying to the divine God to have mercy upon your soul. Paul here now in verse six he begins to, to share this conversion experience, this this encounter with Christ. He says, I was on my way and drew near Damascus about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. So what's different about this testimony than in Acts 9 and in 26, he speaks on the time frame, noon, indicating that it was the brightest time of the day. And yet in that brightest time of the day, the brightness of God shone forth. It wasn't like in the middle of the night with lightning flash. This big contrast, it's the brightest time of the day. We could make an easily, easy argument that this is a manifestation of the Shekinah glory, the glory of God that Paul saw and instantly blinded him. Verse 7, I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me. So Paul's encounter here the divine God, his, his, his conversion. It has four elements we're going to look at today, four elements to this calling. And I want you to kind of lay these things upon your heart as you're, you're pondering your, your own personal conversion. I'm not saying every single time it's going to be the same, um, but look here, this first element. It's an Individual calling. Individual calling. He said, I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's a personal, individual call. You guys have this, especially younger, you kids. This is an individual call. It's always an individual call. You are not saved by your parents' faith. You were not saved because grandma took you to church a few times and gave you a Bible. No. It's individual calling upon your life. God wasn't in this instance, in every instance, God's not simply sitting in heaven just throwing darts, hoping something will stick. He's not shouting from heaven saying, hey, is there anybody there? Is there anybody out there? Is there anybody home? No. Specifically said, Saul. Saul is a personal calling upon your life. Personal. It's a reminder of John 10, verse 3. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own by name. He calls his own by name. It's not saying that you'll hear an audible voice. Hear an audible voice. You might want to get checked out. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read scripture out loud. For Saul here, he did. The canon wasn't closed yet. Our canon is closed. God is done speaking audibly. Because if he isn't, then... Scripture is not closed. We can continue to add to it. But today he does speak to us through his son, through the word. The Holy Spirit's guidance. So we see this here in, in, verse, in verse nine. It says, now those who are with me, this personal call here, and those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. He gave only, the, only Paul the ears to hear. It was only Paul who heard the voice and understood the voice of Christ. So this here is, is, is not only a salvational, not only is, is salvation an individual calling here, but secondly, it's a, it's a convicting calling, always a convicting calling. So he says, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? It's interesting here. Just like so many instances, I talked about Cain last week, where the Lord asked Cain, you know, where is your brother? He's like, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He asked the woman at the well, go get your husband. She's like, I don't I don't have a husband. It's like, I know, you've had five, and the one you now have is not your husband. Sovereign Lord already knows the information, but, but he's using the question to bring conviction upon their hearts. Same here with Paul. He's using that question of, why are you persecuting me? He knows the answer to the question. He's bringing conviction upon Paul's heart. And this is also what we ought to do when, when sharing the gospel, when showing a person their, their desperate need for a Savior. Because we all, all fall short of His glorious standard, each and every one of us. So this question addressed the, the very sin of persecuting the church, persecuting the followers of Christ. Is revealing to Paul the, the depths of his depravity. What's so important about this is, is the conviction of sin must always precede true saving faith. That's the difference. Those who do not see their need for a Savior will not look to Christ. Someone comes and, and believes in Christ, professes Christ, but there is no conviction of sin. That faith is counterfeit. It's counterfeit. This here was a convicting, Paul, or, sorry, convicting call here upon the Apostle Paul, upon his life. Jesus said, Again, why are you persecuting me? says in in the other in in Acts nine and also twenty-six, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is so connected to his followers that whoever persecutes his followers persecutes him. I think that's a it's a warning warning to to all those who attack the bride of Christ. Anything they say or do, God will hold them accountable lest they repent. The psalmist, Psalm 56, reminds us that God puts our tears in his bottle and he records them in his books. No attack, no persecution will go unpunished unless they repent. So we see this individual calling, this convicting calling, and then we see an identifying calling here on the life of Paul. It says here in verse 8, And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. So here, the Lord, he identifies himself, Jesus of Nazareth, and the way, the truth, and the life, nobody can come to the Father except through the Son. So Jesus, he's revealing himself, revealing who he is to Paul. And this is, this is very important because people need to know who God is if they want to be saved. They need to know who he is. This, this voice didn't say, I'm your higher power. It didn't say that. Didn't say, I'm the inner voice of your imagination. Didn't say that. Didn't say, I'm your best life now. Didn't say that. He Didn't identify himself as Baal or, or Buddha or undigested pizza. None of those things. This is Jesus of Nazareth. The very one whom Paul denied as the Messiah. The very one who all, all who before coming to same faith denied as the Messiah. Being hostile to Christ. Verse 10, we see this effectual calling. This unconditional effectual calling. He said, and I said, this is... This is awesome. This is beautiful. I said, what shall I do, Lord? What shall I do, Lord? Do you you see the difference? The incredible transformation upon a regenerated heart. The first thought is, what shall I do, Lord? It's the difference between going to the cross and getting on the cross. Not just going to the cross and and looking of, of... Simply of if what what Christ can do for me in my life, what's the prosperity I can gain from Christ in my life? No, he says, "What shall I do, Lord? I'll do anything because you've revealed to me the the loveliness of yourself, the glory of yourself, the ugliness of my own sin. It's been revealed that. What shall I do? before he was in 100% rebellion and how he says what shall i do. This is an indication of a changed heart. Of God taking Saul's heart of stone and giving him a heart of flesh. Just moments ago this is also too a great example of God's election and that he shows no partiality. Saves whom he wants to save, when, where. Moments ago, Paul's road to Damascus, heading in to kill Christians. Fire breathing Pharisee, zealous for this persecution. And in an instant, everything changes. In an instant, Paul didn't wake up that morning and was like, I think I'm going to get saved. I'm going to get saved this morning. No. This is an exhibit A. Exhibit A of, of, of the example of the sovereign God saving whom he wills for his will, for his glory. Now in verse 10 here, Paul's given a commission. It's given his commission here. I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. That word appointed is a, it's a, it's a strong word. It indicates the divine predestined plan for the Apostle Paul set forth before him. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples. He says in in John 15, you do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. It's that divine calling upon the life of his people. He says, and since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, was led by hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. He was blinded by a, a Shekinah glory. And in that, it wasn't a temporary blindness in the sense of like he would have been healed on his own. This now required a divine healing for him to receive back his sight. And, and in verse 12, In one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. So, remember, I'm kind of bringing this back into what's going on here. Paul's standing on them steps. He's, he's, he's addressing the mob, preaching to the mob, and he's putting this emphasis here on Ananias. Why? Because he would have known. A lot of them would have known who Ananias was. So he said he's a devout man, well spoken of by the Jews. So this connection to the Ananias uh, like that of Gamaliel. So he's saying, I have these, I, I'm just like you. I brushed shoulders with Ananias. I was raised up at the feet of Gamaliel. So give him further testimony, further testimony to Paul's defense towards this stirred up crowd, gaining their ear. And this testimony continues. Verse 13 saying, talking of Ananias, Ananias came to me and standing by me said to me, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight. And saw him So healing of the blind was that, that was a messianic sign that was prophesied in the, in the Old Testament, several, several places in the Old Testament. Isaiah 50 or 35 talks about it says, "When the Messiah comes, he will heal the blind." Not just talking of a physical healing, but more so, a spiritual healing, spiritual healing, where the veil is removed. And we have eyes to see, eyes to see the loveliness of Christ. Then Paul was given his mission in verse 14. Starts off, says, this is Ananias speaking to Paul. The God of our fathers. Again, Paul bringing to the tension that, that he is part of the same, same heritage they are. That same word, appointed. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. Again, he's appointed to, to know his will, and this would occur through many revelations that is given to Paul. Remember, Paul would spend he spent three years on the backside of the desert in, in Nabataean Arabia with the Lord, receiving the revelations uh, for his letters, the, the mysteries of old, of, of the, the grafting in of the Gentiles. He says, to see the righteous one. This is, this is also significant because one of Christ's messianic titles in the, the Old Testament was that of the righteous one. Isaiah 53, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. It says in Jeremiah 23, the Messiah is called the righteous branch, who will be called the Lord of our righteousness. He alone, he alone is righteous. None are righteous, none are good, no one seeks God. Isaiah also says that, that, that our acts, our, our, our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. And he says to hear a voice from his mouth. And then in verse 15. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have heard, seen, and heard. Witness for him to everyone. Paul didn't let opportunity slip by to preach the gospel, to share the word to share Christ with people not everyone doesn't indicate every single person on the planet put a witness for for all people to the Jews to the Gentiles to kings the Jews didn't quite understand this here they're probably likely thinking that when he said To everyone, he's thinking of the dispersed Jews. The Jews that were dispersed ever since the Babylonian exile. As I spoke of earlier in in 21 is where he, he mentions the Gentiles and that mob just erupts. Then in passing here, verse 16. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. This is a verse here that, that those who preach the baptismal regeneration, that you need to be baptized to be saved, this is one of the verses that, that they typically use, and they pull it out of context and fail systematic theology of, of looking anywhere else in Scripture, of that we are saved solely by grace through faith and none of our works. But we see two commands here. So kind of just digging, I'll give you another little Greek lesson here. Two commands in that verse. They're separated by um, what are called particles. The Greek particle separates these two commands. First command is be baptized. The second one is wash away your sins. And the particles indicate how you get that done. And so Wash away your sins. How do you get that done? The particle, the word epicalis amenos, calling on his name. Calling on his name. Wash away your sins. That's that that not just lip service, but that true calling upon the name of Christ. where The Holy Spirit has has shown you the, the, the majesty of Christ, the depravity of your sins, that true calling upon the name of Christ. Washes away your sins. Second command to be baptized. How do you get that done? Anastas is the particle, which means to rise, get up. Two separate commands here one salvational, one obedience. This is important, especially in younger kids that are, that are growing up in the faith as parents of teaching them what it means to be baptized. Here in this passage, it's very closely related with salvation. I mean, we know it's not salvational, but it God it gave us two ordinances. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, make emphasis in teaching our kids what, this, what these, these ordinances mean. I would say if, if yourself or, or your child feels comfortable partaking in communion but not in baptism, I think we'd want to reinvestigate that. There are two ordinances, two commands by God. Neither salvational, but both for those who believe in Christ. And then vice versa. Those who are baptized, be comfortable with taking communion. And that doesn't mean partake in communion every time, because we examine ourselves in that moment. But even in that examination, we're partaking in it because we're looking upon ourselves and reflecting through the lens of God. So applying this passage here, applying this passage to our lives, uh, one thing we see here is Paul. Paul's response to persecution, in the midst of persecution, he doesn't lash out. He doesn't uh, lash back with a, a condescending speech towards them. He responds out of love. Responds out of love. Like how m- how many of us could do that in the midst of that? Just just got done getting beaten. The, the soldiers had to pick him up and carry him because so they were still ensuing to, to, to kill him. response is responsible with a desire to see them be saved. That's his response for being beaten. His desire is to bless them. Romans 12, Paul says, Repay no one, no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, live peacefully with all. Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Christ says we are to love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That was the heart. That was the heart of the apostle Paul here. It should be the heart of all believers. And also remember, by this time here, Paul had already written Romans 9, 10, and 11. He knew that there was a partial hardening upon the hearts of Israel. He knew that. That there was going to be a small remnant. He knew that. But he preached. He preached. It's like Spurgeon. He talks about, he's like, if I knew who the elect was, if God stamped their backs with a with a yellow dot, I'd go around lifting shirt tails and finding out who God's elect is and preaching to them, but he didn't. So we preach. We preach to dying men in a dying world as dying men. So Paul prayed. He, just, he prayed, God, provide. Provide me the opportunity to share the gospel so that some may be saved. That ought to be our hearts. Heart of God for the lost. And if, if if you do not desire to see others be saved, you are not saved yourself. Even in the midst of the persecution, we're here to respond from a heart of love, heart of gentleness, of mercy, compassion. Because remembering that, that we too were once hostile to God following the course of the world. There may be no greater example than this, than, than Christ himself. He gives another example of, oh, with his, his minister, Paul. Paul referred to himself as the chief of sinners. Sinners. Chief of sinners, he hated and persecuted the church. He's the chief of sinners. And this is this is the beauty. This is the beauty of the gospel of grace. This is it. If God can save Paul, He can save anyone. Anyone. Now, there are some people that think, "Man, I I have sinned so much. I have done." So many horrible things in my life, there is no way that God could forgive me. There's no way. Man, I must never, ever shorten the infinitely long arm of the sovereign Lord, the infinitely long arm of His grace I could reach out and, and, and save any sinner. I think that that what we see in this is the powerful depths of the mercy and the grace of God. If you have if you're here today and you have fallen into sin, fallen so far into sin that you think there's just no way out. And repent. Repent. Repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only way. There's there is one way. There's one way to heaven. One way to be in the presence of God in his glory forever. There are a million ways to go to hell. Leonard Ravenhill he he, he said that <clears throat> on this subject like how does one go to hell? Do nothing. Coast on. Just coast on. Do absolutely nothing. Those that want to be in His presence, His glory, for all of eternity, called to repent. Repent. Today is the day of salvation. And this is what he says, this is what it says in scriptures, as far as the east is from the west, the Lord will remove your transgressions from upon you. He'll cast them as far as the east is from the west. And though your sins were like scarlet, you will be as white as snow, as white as snow. The Lord will remember your sins no more, no more. He will tread on your iniquities. He will tread your iniquities under his feet and he will cast them into the very depths of the sea. That's our Lord. That's the promise that he gives to all sinners. Cast yourself upon the mercy seat of God. Pray that he has mercy upon you. Any sinner can be saved if they but repent and come to Christ. Rely solely upon Christ. Not of your own merit, but solely upon Christ. Let's pray this morning. Father, this morning we pray that, pray for the heart, the heart of the lost. I pray your spirit convicts them, brings them to a place of mourning, mourning over their sins, mourning over their transgressions, their hostility towards you. Father, I pray that you regenerate hearts this morning. Regenerate hearts to see just the majesty of your son Jesus. I pray you raise up, raise up men and women this morning. Men and women of boldness. Ones who don't cower in the face of persecution. Ones who will boldly, boldly proclaim your Son, the one whom has saved them. Lord, we pray this in his precious name, Jesus. Amen.